This podcast is supported by Dragon Hockey, a premium hockey brand known for innovative design. Dragon Hockey is the fastest growing hockey brand in Europe. Follow them on Instagram at Dragonfield Hockey and check out their website www.dragonhockey.co.uk. Welcome back to Leftfield Thinking Podcast. We're delighted to announce our collaboration with Dragon Hockey and believe it's a great brand that can help fuel the podcast's development and improve the listener's experience. We've got some really cool things planned together, so stay tuned. This week is a really exciting episode. It's a very pertinent and important conversation with former Hockey Roost star Lily Brazel. It's a well-publicised, turbulent period in the Australian women's programme and Lily recently published the article Upstream Online, which was an incredibly brave reflection of her period in the national team and the struggles that she went through. Myself and Elliot had a very candid conversation with her, and there are lots of takeaways in this around how organisations and teams can support and care for their employees and athletes. I also think there's some important advice if you're an individual who's struggling with mental health and if you feel like the environment around you is not supporting you in the right way, then maybe there's some stuff in here that can help. I think Lily has been so courageous in speaking out, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. So hello and welcome Lily. Can you give us a quick introduction about yourself, who you are, what you do? Thanks for having me on. Um, so yes, I'm Lily Brazel. Uh, I was playing, I was a member of the Australian women's hockey team, the Hockey Roos, up until August last year. I've been playing since ooh, 2017. I've played 52 games, competed at a few major tournaments and had been training for the Tokyo, what was 2020 Olympics, um, which had now been postponed to 2021. And yeah, decided to step away from the Hockey Roos in August last year due to a few uh, issues regarding my mental health and how that was handled within the program. It's amazing actually, Elliot has actually done some research for this one because I sent him your <laughs> article yesterday, the most prepared he's ever been for an interview, but um, fantastic reflection piece and, and obviously has been pretty much viral online. I think it's, it's hit a, a nerve with a lot of people and the topic itself, I think particularly as well within a COVID situation of mental health and, and mental health in the workplace mm. uh, is, is really of the moment uh, and pertinent. So really, if we could start, if you could just run through the, the journey, really, that you've been on and, and your reflections on it, we might jump in with a few questions and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I think like any other person or any other athlete in 2020 it was I was fairly impacted by coronavirus and what that meant for what life looked like and what sport looked like um and like many other athletes preparing for the Olympics having it postponed in early 2020 when you were sort of at your peak fitness peak performance ready for one of the biggest events of your life and career um, it was pretty unsettling to have that um, that big goal all of a sudden shift to at first an unknown date. We didn't know if it was going to go ahead um, and then to be moved a whole year later, that was um, quite unsettling. 
for me as as it was for for everyone involved and I guess the flow-on effects of the Olympics being postponed yeah my mental health was definitely challenged and I was put in a bit of a dark place with with how my life shifted um but I I guess I had been struggling for for a fair while before before COVID um impacted the sporting world and I think what what happened during during COVID sort of sent me into a a space where I really had to think more critically about my health and and what I was doing with hockey and how that was impacting me mentally and when I got to August last year when I sort of realized that I was really unhappy and I wasn't thriving the way I thought an athlete should be thriving um, I sought to to bring that up with the coaching staff of Hockey Australia and and work out a plan to get me into a place where I could continue with the team that I could prepare for Tokyo 2021 in a headspace that would help me be the best athlete I could be and and help the team and unfortunately the discussions around wanting to take leave to focus on my mental health and and how that would work with Hockey Australia didn't quite go as I had planned or in a way that I think was uh was ethical when you bring up those reservations or concerns that you would have, what did that conversation look like? How did that go and how were you made feel by, by the response? Yeah, so I sat down with our coaching staff in August at first to discuss returning to club hockey because thankfully in Western Australia we had club hockey was, was still, was still uh, going on. So that was a sort of a good source of hockey away from our elite training environment, a bit more of a fun environment and, and have the ability to actually play games during 2020, which was, wasn't the case for many other uh, hockey players around the world, even in Australia. So we were lucky to have that. Um, but I had been rehabilitating an Achilles injury and had sat down with the staff to discuss my return to training um, and also my mental health um, and how that sort of that rehabilitation fitted in my physical rehabilitation um and the discussions which went over a couple of meetings of working out how when and how I would return to 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 playing hockey um yeah just didn't really go as as I thought they should or as I hoped they would and the concerns that I brought up that I raised with the staff of, of how I was feeling mentally and how the hockey environment was impacting me, not just while I was at hockey, but away from hockey as well. Um, my, I guess my concerns weren't taken seriously or weren't, um, yeah, just weren't important enough for the staff to really consider, I guess, the, the person under the athlete and, and how that was was impacting me and my ability to to stay in the team. And so after a lot of long meetings and debates and having two very different sides of the arguments where the coaches believed that I didn't have a problem and that I had to stick to their plan or I would leave and me thinking that there was another way to, to solve the issue, to work together, to get me into a good mental um, headspace because there were these, yeah, very two differing opinions and we couldn't agree 
on a path to move forward, um, I was, I guess, forced and also chose to, to step away because I was put in a position where I had to choose between remaining in the team or looking after my mental health. And I chose to, to look after my mental health. Obviously, this became apparent at the time. Was there a point in the journey where you started to feel that this was a bit more conscious for you and you started to understand that you weren't in a great place? Yeah, I think it was probably in December, November 2019, where so almost a year earlier that I realised I was, I was quite unhappy. And I only sort of really noticed it after having lots of discussions with my with my partner um, on having, I guess, a lot of negative emotions around around hockey and and not feeling um, great on a on a daily basis outside of hockey and him sort of, I guess, pointing that out to me and and helping me understand um, understand that and. And from those conversations with him, I then sought to to work with an external psychologist away from Hockey Australia to to dive a little deeper, I guess, into to how I was feeling. And and that was yeah, sort of November, December two thousand and nineteen. And I started to work with him so that I could hopefully get into a headspace that that would help me be a good athlete for Tokyo coming up in July twenty twenty. So what, what was the advice that, that that psychologist was giving you? Um, at the time, so end of 2019, um, I guess it was looking for ways, that looking for the positive things that, that hockey was bringing to my life and, and trying to, to focus on those and, and also having things outside of hockey that could fill my cup up I guess so if if hockey was draining me of this energy and of of a bit of happiness what were the other things that could perhaps fuel that and provide joy away from hockey and and that certainly um helped for a while and I think in January February 2020 I was in a good space I was pretty excited about the upcoming Olympics was in a really good face a really good place physically probably at the fittest I had been throughout my career um but then that I guess came crashing down when COVID happened. I think for a lot of people in a lot of situations COVID's been the the straw that's broken the cam- camel's back psychologically and there's a there's an element of you know for, of, I didn't really want to talk about my experiences but from my experience of um si- similar situations you kind of just want to keep busy and keep going and telling yourself you're going to get through it and it'll be fine mm. and then a slight disturbance to any sort of routine just tips you over the edge and um i suppose in a in a positive way that does make you really tackle what's what's going on rather than suffering in silence really mm. you spoke earlier about you know the, the psychologist said what were the positives um, and to focus on those. So, you know, I think people will look and be quite envious to a certain extent of, you, you know, you've played senior international hockey, you've traveled the world, you've played in major tournaments, you know, all that sort of stuff, and maybe not really understand what's going on under the surface. But what, what were those positives that kept drawing you back and, and kept you involved? 
Yeah, it's it's funny. Just as you asked that question now, I've sort of clicked a little bit in my head that those things, those positive things were immediately taken away when COVID happened and they were being able to compete at the highest level. I'm a really competitive person and I loved training. I loved playing at the highest level I could. And the other thing was the camaraderie, the teammates, the getting to do, getting to travel the world and play a sport you love with some of your best mates. Like that's awesome. And so I was, I guess, really trying to to focus in on those things because from the outside as well, I think that's what people admire or get jealous about athletes because it does look like a pretty cool lifestyle from the outside and and those parts of it are awesome for sure um but yeah I guess COVID took those things away very quickly no competition no training and all of my teammates we all dispersed over the country back home so no longer and we were stuck inside so no no longer had that mateship or camaraderie to to fall back on You've been in the system, so the Gillaroos, is that the right term? Is that the... Yes. <laughs> I, told you, I told you we've done some research. <laughs> um, so you've been in the system with those, with through the 21s, do you do under 18s? And how long have you been in the sort of hockey? Yeah, story? so I've been playing in Gillaroos junior stuff since I was 16. So nearly 10 years of my life I've been involved in international hockey whether that's been at the junior level or senior level yeah obviously from a young age you said you've been very competitive you've but you've been quite full on with your hockey for quite a long period of time now then yeah yeah probably I've been playing hockey since since I was seven um and I would say maybe at age 12 or 13 I was like yeah this this is pretty legit I like this I'm good at it um and it was something I could you know, see myself doing for a long time and, and dreamed of going to the Olympics. And then, yeah, I guess it's sort of age 15, 16, it became a pretty um, heavy regimented training schedule for up until August last year. So as you went through the ranks, did it just become more and more serious? Is that, I mean? Yeah, it definitely gets, the the training and the commitments definitely pick up as you progress. And once you're in the Hockey Roos squad, you're expected to relocate and live in Perth, which for most of the girls in the team is on the other side of the country where most of us are from. We're mostly from the East Coast, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Queensland. And, yeah, so I relocated to Perth in 2018. There's an element there as well that as the pressures of the environment or the intensity of the environment cranks up, you're also stripping away a lot of your support network. So you spoke quite a lot you know, in, the, in the article about you, your partner and, and the support that you have there and that you've been back home over Christmas. How did that relocation factor into to how you were feeling? Yeah, that was when I moved to Perth in 2018. It was actually my second time moving there. I, as a junior, um, I finished high school and, in, and I was 18 and I... Um, moved across to Perth on a junior scholarship to be sort of involved in the hockey roos, but still as a junior, but training with the senior team. And when I moved over as an 18 year old, I just out of high school, I was, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Didn't even know how to cook a meal. Like I was useless and I put on a lot of weight. I was extremely 
I would, on reflection, I was very unhappy, but at the time I had no concept that I was unhappy. I was just like, oh, why isn't this working? And I ended up having surgery um, on my calves at the end of that year. So I moved back to Sydney and then, um, and I, what was that? Ended up being sort of five, four or five years later, I moved back, moved back over. I was a bit older, had built up a really good support network in Melbourne and Sydney. And I was really connected over there. And I was quite wary of moving back over um, on reflection on on my last time there and how unsupported I felt as an 18-year-old. I was now 22 moving back over and although I had a lot more common sense and uh, experience in, in how to live, it was um, it's a scary thing to be taken away from all of your support and thrown into a very serious, full-on environment. And when I moved over at, at 22, I was adamant that I wanted to really be able to ground myself in Perth and make that feel like home because I don't think I would have been able to make it work if that didn't become a place where I had friends and support network around me that that made me feel safe in Perth. And, yeah, so I made that a priority and it definitely, definitely helped and, in my first year, I, I met my partner who I'm now still with after two or so years. And um, yeah, I referred to him a lot in, in the piece that I wrote and definitely having him as, um, has been an in, incredible support. I think people can be quite, well, certainly organisations can be quite naive to large geographical relocation. And it certainly is sort of almost like an onboarding, welcoming part of a, of that relocation. I think organizations do need to take responsibility for helping people find a network outside of the workplace because otherwise you do lead to a skewed sense of the relative importance of things because you're institutionalized. And yeah, I'm I'm quite compulsive in in my character and similar to what you were saying, very competitive and can intensely focus on one thing. And unless you are really pushed, like your psychologist sort of advised you to, to find activities outside of one thing, then it, it just, all those little moments, those little problems get ramped up and exaggerated. Mm. So I think, I think that's something people really need to be mindful of that when someone either for sport or for work is relocating massively and their support network's eroded, I suppose, they've got to put steps in place to really help them settle in and integrate with the local area. You, you spoke about the club stuff and how that was a positive experience. If you were to compare the environments of, of the club hockey and the hockey route, what were the differences and what were the key differences that actually made the club environment so much more positive for you? Mm. The, yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think on the surface you can look at it and say, well, club hockey is a lower level it's not as stressful and intense it's not a high performance environment so you don't have the pressures of performance um, day in day out it's a lot less he- you train two times a week and have a fun game on the weekend it's it you're not expected to be amazing you're expected to show up and hopefully win a few games um, well that's how it is in Australia anyway I know it's a bit maybe more serious over in Europe um <laughs> yeah i'm Sorry. hoping my club players aren't saying what you're saying 
oh yeah, so a lot more laid back over here. And that's, it's a good feeling to not have, to not have that, um, to not have that pressure. Um, but obviously in a high performance environment where you're playing in World Cups or Olympics or Pro League, whatever it is, you need to have that standard and expectation of, of how you're going to perform and, you know, to meet team ob- objectives, rah, rah, rah. Um, but I think the difference that I have found other than just that the pressure being taken off is the different level of respect and the approach to athletes. So on the respect side, I find in the club environment, it's this more unified group of people coming together that have equal respect for each other, for the coaching staff and the coaches to the players as well. And the athletes aren't viewed as um, something that can be be taken from. And this is something I've started to think about a lot more um, is a sentence that maybe you guys have, have used as coaches um, or have heard of people saying, oh, we're just trying to get the best out of you. And it's this mindset that we're trying to, to take things from the athlete to take the best out of them rather than putting the best into them or making the environment the best for them. And I think club does that really well of creating this environment that people love to be in, that they want to show up and can be themselves and feel valued and valued and respected. And then I look at the high performance side of things and that narrative of got to be the best, like got to give your best every single day and trying to like take everything out of the athlete for the success or the, of the team or um, perhaps the, the resume of the coach rather than looking at creating that environment where athletes can, can be them their best, their best selves. Um, and I think that's where the, different, the difference lies in the, the approach towards the athletes. And I don't, I don't think it has to be like that. I think you can still have really high performing teams and high performance environments while still creating a sense of respect and value for the athletes that gives them the best environment. Yeah, it sounds like that high performance environment you were part of was more like it was harvesting from the players rather than nourishing and empowering. Mm. You spoke in the article the the difference between the Kookaburras and the Hockey Roos environment and whether or not that is a gender difference in terms of perception of gender or actually just coach's methodology and an approach Mm. from that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk talk about your perceptions of the the men's environment compared to the women's and, and how you feel they should be more aligned. I've sort of had those thoughts on the difference between the men's and women's program throughout my time um, in the hockey rooms and as a junior as well of wondering like, oh, why are the men, why are they men so much better than us? Like, oh, maybe they're just better because they're men and like men's hockey is better. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why they're more successful. And it wasn't until I was writing the piece and asked myself the question, which I wrote in there, like, what is it that makes the environment so toxic if you like or makes you sort of like brings you to your knees what what is it about the program that was making me unhappy and when I started to write those things out um 
I guess I noticed that the the way I guess the approach to the women's program does seem a pretty different towards to towards the men's team I feel like they're and again as you said it may be a difference a difference in the coach's approach to it but I think as I started to discover it was maybe a bit more through the whole system than just the head coach that was employed but yeah when I look at the men's team they all love what they do they feel they seem like they feel very valued and respected and it's it's this very united group of people making decisions together on what's best for the team and the coaches seem to really respect the players voices then when I look at the women's program and what I felt in the program is that's just not the case at all we would have always be having meetings bringing things to the coach's attention that would just be completely silenced or told that we're just complaining or bitching as girls do and not taken seriously and I think over the last 20 years of Hockey Roos with uh, what's that sort of uh, three different head coaches it's been the same story and I guess I, I came to realize that realize that more after writing the piece with a lot of previous Hockey Roos over the last 20 years reaching out to me sort of saying like wow thanks for sort of being able to articulate what I could never understand and yeah, I, I do think there is a bit of very subtle ingrained cultural issue of gender inequality of seeing women as perhaps a bit less than and that our opinions and voices don't matter that much and we should sort of just shut up and get on with the job when I look at the men though it's quite the opposite it's like great opinion yeah let's look at implementing that hold on you've got a problem all right let's try and sort it out it's it seems vastly different we interviewed um Rick Charlesworth recently <laughs> yes spoke to, yeah, we spoke to him about his perception of of the situation and it was really interesting that he spoke about the culture of the men and how They'd done quite a lot of reviews on it after uh, London 2012 when they were frustrated in terms of the outcome. Mm. And he misread the culture. He thought it was in a better place than it was. And and then he said they did quite a a large amount of overhaul on it. And you you wonder if maybe actually some of that is still, there's a bit of a legacy of of that group empowered uh, environment still there and and it's been picked up by the by the coaches. I don't know where I was going with that, but that was just a, a little a little offshoot of a point. What would you say when you're looking back? I mean, we've mentioned COVID as and lockdown as being a big big moment. Were there any sort of as you're moving through your journey that you go, oh shit, that's a big point. That's a an eye opening moment, or or equally the other way wow, that's an amazing moment that actually makes all this worth it. Were there any sort of key milestones in that three years that, that flipped you? Um, I mean, it's. I find it, just as you say, three years in, I get a bit sad because, you know, I was wanting to play for the Hockey Roos for quite a long time and, and have a longer career than, than what I've had. Um, but I think on those, the, the key 
moments if I maybe I'll start with a hat the like maybe a highlight one and then I'll go to the, the, the bad one <laughs> um but I think a highlight for me in my career was maybe just at the start of 2019 um I'd gotten into a pretty good space with my with my hockey I was playing really well the pro league had just started and at the start of pro league I was absolutely loving it I thought it was the best thing ever because all our games were domestic games in Australia until the uh away game started I didn't really like all that travel yeah I had a lot of fun during that time in pro league and during that time I felt so respected and valued and I thought our team was in such a good place and I absolutely loved getting to travel to different cities, play with my mates. And I was like, yeah, I could, I could do this for years. This is awesome. And yeah, I was pretty happy with um, how I was performing on the pitch, but sort of in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, was I just like, was I valued just because I was performing well at that time? And was I just liking it because I felt valued and actually things weren't so good, but I felt good. So I thought it was good. But regardless of that, in the moment, I was absolutely loving that and and really enjoyed what international hockey brought to my life. And then I guess the sort of other key moment um, that I look back on and that I wrote about in my piece as well was one night when I was sitting in bed. Um, this was during COVID last year and I I was just feeling incredibly sad and I, I didn't know what it was. And as soon as I said to my partner, I, I I'm just feeling really sad right now. I just cried and cried and like deep, deep crying that I'd like never really experienced before. Um, and it like, it was, it was quite painful and I, I, I didn't know what it meant. I was, I was scared about what it meant. It was like, I kind of felt in that moment, like maybe, I don't know, maybe hockey isn't right for me. And I was just, yeah, not, not in a good place. And then when my partner said to me that night when I was crying, like he said, uh, maybe this is little seven-year-old Lily dying. As soon as he said that, just more and more tears came on. And I think I was just terrified in how I was feeling about hockey and maybe wanting to ad admit that to myself. Yeah. Yeah, I think you said there about, you know, the highlight of feeling like you were being respected and you were being listened to. I think coaches really underestimate their influence on someone's life. And there's, a, there's so much about the importance of language within coaching and because how people will infer different things. But I think this is something the consistency that you have to have when dealing with people or when managing people, regardless of them being on top of the world or low down, you are part of their life and you're a real, you're a real key influencer on their life. And, and I think you've, you've just got to be really aware of that. The one thing that I felt quite interesting, this is something I never really understand about players but interesting for reading your article <laughs> the mindset of how being on the starting team mentally mm. uplifted you and that's something that I really rail against with 
players all the time. I know we're a 16, blah, blah, blah. But there is a stigma to starting on the bench. And maybe there's an element of, actually, if we just keep rotating who's starting and who's not, then if I'm in a bad place anyway, I'm not starting to question actually how that is being perceived in the same way. Um, I think that's really difficult. You know, we'll speak with junior coaches quite a lot on the importance of giving kids a variety of experiences in the game. So equal pitch time, but pitch time in different positions. Mm. One of the benefits of that is actually they don't suddenly go, oh, I'm playing shit, that's why I'm on the bench. Or, oh, I'm only a left defender this week, that's because I can't dribble or whatever, you know, whatever random thought comes into their head. So this idea of starting is still something, you know, it's a bit of an anathema to me really, but when, when would you find out what the lineup would be? Was there a routine of that? And then how would the players talk about that lineup and where they were in terms of starting bench, whatever? Uh, yeah, so always uh, this always the same. We would have our pre-game meeting before every international game in the morning of game day. Uh, so even if we were playing like a, a really early game, which doesn't happen that much anymore, but if we're playing a 10 a.m. game, we'd have a meeting at, say, 7 or 6 a.m. and you'd find out then what the starting lineup was and the objectives after the game. And for me, there's always this sense of, again, nervousness when the starting lineup pops up. I'm like, oh, am I on it? Am I not? Why am I not on it? Did I not train well yesterday? Like, oh, we're playing a good team today. Why am I? Oh, I'm on it today. And just like all of these thoughts that um, I guess, yeah, run through your head. And like we've had open conversations as a group that our starting lineup reflects the blessed players of the day and playing a high, in a high performance environment, playing for Australia, of course, you're not going to get equal game time and, and that's totally fine. But yeah, I guess our, our method is that you have the best players on the pitch for large amounts of the game. And that's generally the starting lineup as well. And yeah, as I wrote in my piece, I, it was uh, quite shocking after a pretty long sustained period um, as a starting centre half to, to no longer be on the starting lineup ever again after having sort of spoken up to the coach about some of his actions. Um, yeah, that was pretty, in, it was a interesting experience for me to go, to go through that. Um, but as you were saying just before on how coaches speak to athletes, I think this thought sort of popped into my mind. I think, yeah, we do, you do have to be quite careful if, because I think athletes can, we can very much like hang our identity on our sport and if our identity all of a sudden isn't very good and we're not getting valued for our who we are as a person anymore then that can send you into a really low headspace so I think it's yeah the language but also being able to make sure we're crafting athletes who don't hang their identity solely on who they are as, uh, as a player yeah yeah I think that's a lot like people who are institutionalized in any environment that you hang mm. your around your your vocation and if your job's going well or if you're feeling valued at work because it's the main focus point of your life you're on a real high and you know you're skipping through daisies every day but as soon as shit hits the fan or something's not going right as I said like the relative importance of things is totally skewed because you're all in 
And I think high performance environments have got to be really careful around how an athlete wraps their identity up into a sport and how it becomes imbalanced, really, a lot of the time. Same with any vocation. Mm. One, one, one thing you, you know, spoke about, a, a model that I would lead towards within coaching is um, self-determination theory of, of motivation. So how an athlete needs to be related. So relatedness, have, how they have to have autonomy and, and, and competence. And it's interesting that you're talking there about how there was conversations as a group that the starting line are the best players on that day. So immediately there, it's elevating how they feel competent. That's positive for those 11 people, but for the other people, the negative impact of that, it could be quite severe psychologically. How, How do those conversations go in terms of, right, you know, you said as a group, the starting 11 is going to be the best players. And, you know, when a coach puts up a team sheet, were there any conversations around, right, these are the, this is the reason why these people are the best? Or was it just black and white, that's the team, deal with it? Yeah, it's pretty much just, here's the team, on to the next slide. There's not really any conversation about it. Um, I think any conversation that does happen is often behind closed doors, player to player in a bit of a more... A negative sense, maybe complaining or, or bitching, whatever it might be, and that's definitely not a way to 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 handle it at all. But yeah, I think it's very much his team get on with the job. My head's buzzing at the minute because, as I mentioned, the role I'm taking on, I'm just sat here thinking about my school role as well and how. So I've been here for five and a half years, and the first term typically September to December is the longest term but with the girls it's always one of those where it's my final year I'm I'm under 18 now like on the top of the school so you get this sort of leadership bubble that builds up going I was below them and I want to make that environment better and then the minute season starts and you lose your first game or something it's well why don't we do that that was your fault and it's Mm. I think everything you said's really resonated with me putting you on the spot I guess if you're in charge and how, you know, if you had any instant thoughts of how might you frame some of these conversations about, let's say, selection or, or the lineup, how might you do that to, I guess, empower the players or give more, is it just a communication thing, do you think? Or Yeah, I think, again, definitely at the elite level, there is part of it where it is, you have a role in a team to play and maybe you don't have the most important or most significant and your role might be smaller, your playing time might be smaller, but that's the job you've got to do. But I think, as you've just said there, it's a communication thing. How can a coach talk to the players who maybe aren't going to play 50 minutes of a 60-minute game and still make sure they feel that their role, those 10 minutes on the pitch is important, that their rotation that they're going to have for for one of the players that's playing big minutes how can they bring their best their best selves onto the pitch during that time and I think it comes down to communication for sure whether it's game day selection or selection for a tour there needs to and this is something we we didn't have a lot of was really transparent communication that wasn't trying to butter us up or make us feel good but made us aware of why we didn't get selected what needs to be better what we can improve but what we still bring to the team whether we're playing on the field watching on the sideline what is it that we still bring whether we're playing or not that can contribute to the success of the team because I think as I've 
gone through this a bit more as well. Success isn't just the score on the scoreboard at the end of the game. It's it's how the players feel. It's how they want to show up every day. It's wanting to be there. I think success is bigger than just winning one game or one tournament. It's sustained winning, but sustained happiness and, and thriving for a team as well. You obviously mentioned your article as well about the player environment. You had the check-ins where you were just player-led. Was that player-led that was coach structured as such or was it actually the team are going to get together and discuss it how did that sort of look for you guys for those listening we would the night before a game uh, a major game we would sit in a room and go around the circle and talk about how we're feeling about the upcoming game often sometimes they would these would be just with the players sometimes it would be with the whole staff including the physio manager as well sometimes maybe just one coach it would vary and I think the initiative to do this was player-led in hope that we could be more open and honest about how we were feeling um, and and support people that maybe were feeling really nervous for a game or whatever it might be and I think it was quite beneficial when we started it it was somewhere in early 2019 um, and it started out quite well uh, but then it sort of turned into people just talking about the tactics of the game um, rather than using it as an opportunity to to speak about maybe what their concerns were or how they were feeling and, and how we could best prepare not tactically but emotionally and mentally for the game. You're saying, you know, it was in, in your mind it was there to prepare emotionally, psychologically for performance. Was that articulated as the purpose of these meetings when they were initiated? Yeah, definitely. My first memory of it was in Pro League against New Zealand. And that was definitely the, um, I guess, the objective of it because we also had, I think, a few people that were young and also debuting in the team that we wanted to make them feel safe and that that being nervous for an international game is okay and that even some of the most senior players are going to be nervous before every game and I think yeah that was the the objective at the start and I think it like it was it was quite beneficial um for me and for other players because I'm someone who's nervous I'm always nervous even get nervous before a club game um and for my teammates to sort of know the headspace I was in then come game day the next day maybe it's during warm-up or during half time they check in and go oh Lil like how are you going about this um you know and there's opens up a bit more communication yeah, being, yeah I think that's the key isn't it just being open emotionally because uh, as a coach you know I'm incredibly nervous about an uncertain moment before the first training session in pre-season every year, right up until it actually, you know, the first activity starts, I'm like, I don't know anything. Why am I here? <laughs> the whole, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome and just being really nervous because effectively it's your first performance and it's, it's really stressful. So I wonder if the management and the leadership of the group modelled that vulnerability or if it was closed off because I think players pick up on that that it's actually it's okay it's a non-judgmental environment if you're there to go you know what I'm also this is shit for me I'm stressing I feel like I'm gonna 
go and spew in the loo in a minute. But yeah, I think so. Firstly, how how vulnerable did the did the management allow them to see, or did they stay closed off? And then secondly, the players have have agreed that that's what those meetings are about. When the the style of the meeting is changing over time and evolving to be something that is less open and more about the fancy dress costume of technical or tactical stuff. How did players challenge that and say, no, come on, this is what we're here to talk about. Let's be, or did they? So they're the two Mm. questions. Starting with the first one, which is a really good question. Um, And I probably noticed a bit, I noticed it a bit in the moment, but good to reflect on it now that the coaching staff and a few in particular definitely didn't have that vulnerability and would often have a, I would, I would call it, I guess, like fake vulnerability. This, when you have a conversation with someone, you can sense whether they're being real or whether they're being fake with you. And I would often sense that what some of our coaches were saying was it felt like a bit of a trap almost like I don't think you're actually being real with me right now but maybe you're being real with me so that I'm real and then you use it against me and maybe I'm just overthinking things but I definitely don't think that I ever got like a really honest message from our head coach in particular on yeah how he was going for the biggest game of the of our four years playing against Russia that qualify for the Olympics or when the Olympics were postponed and we would have Zoom meetings and all of us would sit there and talk about how freaking hard it was to have the Olympics disappear and he could say nothing about how that impacted him. He's been a coach for four years and maybe won't now get to coach an Olympics. Like that's huge. That's a huge loss for him as well and for other coaches and there wasn't they didn't have the ability or they didn't have the leadership to be vulnerable with us. And that creates a real, a real barrier. Like, yes, maybe we can be vulnerable just ourselves, but with them, it's very restricted. And then I think when it is just us, there's a sort of a divide of people holding off and people still trying to give because that's not the leadership we're seeing. So why should we do that? The, the second one was when the player groups see the topic or the style of the meetings changing from what the, you know, the original purpose of them was, did they challenge? How did they challenge? Why did mm. they challenge? I, I really don't think we did. I think we got into a bit of a bad habit of almost saying, especially with Pro League, because it was... You know, you're almost playing an international game every two weeks over six months. So it became a very routine lifestyle for a long time rather than these sort of two-week tournaments thrown throughout the year. So it was a bit different and it almost became habit of, oh, we've got a check-in meeting. All right, I'm just going to say I'm lacking a bit of confidence, so I'm going to work on this. I'm just going to say I'm tired. I'm just going to say this and people would be saying that, that same message. And I'm just thinking now, like, were they saying it as like superstition? Oh, I've got to say the same thing because I played well last time when I said that. I'm not sure. And yeah, I don't think there was a moment, and maybe I hold myself accountable to that as well, where any of us 
reflected on that. I certainly did after, after our check-in against Russia that we weren't being um, real, but I guess I didn't take that opportunity to, to bring it up. But yeah, I think we just got stuck in a bit of a bad habit and, and we didn't have the leadership to, to change that. It's just really interesting, as you say, that the sort of vulnerability bit. And it's just interesting how that has a massive effect on the environment you create. Um, and as I say, I always sort of feel with the girls term, although it is definitely a big headache for me, I much prefer getting involved with them in that sense of being vulnerable and being really open and honest. And actually, girls, look, I get it. Maths is crap. I understand that. Let's let's play hockey now. Let's enjoy a bit. What do you want to do? Whereas I always think with the boys, there is this natural um, ego comes into it a lot more. And I think from a coaching perspective, having that ego, first of all, yourself, you have to get over your own ego and understand what your biases are and how that then affects the environment you shape and the way you communicate. Yeah, there's definitely an ingrained culture of how how boys and men should be, that being vulnerable isn't brave and it's not courageous um, and someone that I... Uh, read read a lot from and, and watch a lot of talks of is Brene Brown which maybe both of you are familiar with as well and we do have this warped perception that being vulnerable means that we're soft or we're not brave and we're not manly or we're not up for the job when in fact it takes more courage and more bravery to be vulnerable and as you've shown and and I brought up with my team it's it's so important when we are and it's so valuable to to be vulnerable um and I think yeah unfortunately a lot of sports and and organizations are are missing the point a little bit there and I guess we'll probably be able to tell the theory of it but I guess it's that um the reason a lot of the time coaches aren't vulnerable is because they want to be seen as the one with the knowledge and the power and there's a massive self-confidence issue there themselves so you know it's only been in my last sort of I don't know how many years four or five years after going off on my sort of European coaching stuff that I sort of found well my my mentor Michelle said to me you've got a real chip on your shoulder haven't you about your confidence and I was like yeah massively because I've (laughs) been knocked back by lots of different jobs and lots of different things and it's only after really unpicking that and getting over that that I sort of recognized that I am good enough to do my job in whatever format he's not over it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's how it takes ages to get over those yeah so, it's a self-confidence yeah. thing as well definitely what is the theory behind it will come on i feel like i've got a reputation here to know stuff <laughs> and i'll back it up <laughs> no i don't know i think as well there seems to be from your description of the environment you know spoke about harvesting earlier it seems very transactional in in terms of the coach is there and we've we've spoken about this early on when you start coaching you feel like you have to know things and you have to be imparting knowledge and it becomes a very transactional relationship of i am the arbiter of the truth of the world and you will be gratefully receiving this information (laughs) that in itself is you know a very sort of didactic approach to learning that creates a detachment from we're not all in this together I'm, I'm yeah. and you're, you know, you're going to learn from me. Coaching is changing, I think, from that. And in terms of creating that detachment from a player group, you do disrupt the environment. It doesn't become safe, psychologically safe, because that transactional relationship of knowledge also means there's a judgment. 
because I know more than you, you have to learn from me. Therefore, I'm judging your ability to learn and your ability to take mm. forward. And I think that's what I was talking about earlier, the, the subtleties all the time in terms of the relationship between and the communication between the coach and the athlete creates this anxiousness and, and can, can really corrupt the, the environment if you're not careful. I was wondering, yeah. the, other, the other thing we spoke about, the differences of men and women and me and Elliot have both been in schools um, and, you know, with, with hockey, when you're coaching full-time, you do coach both women and men quite a lot. I always found myself a lot more camp at the end of the girls' hockey term at school because uh, I was spending my time, you know, with teenage girls talking about TikTok. You know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm much more feminine afterwards. I was wondering if, if males coaching females, if you perceive that as a, as a problem of detachment and whether or not, that gender difference doesn't help um yeah not at all actually because just as you were talking a bit about that um i guess master student relationship two three of my best coaches and favorite coaches and the coaches that i have thrived under the most were male coaches but it was just a difference in approach of that master-student relationship. And I think some of the best coaches aren't necessarily the ones that are incredible hockey players that won 30 million medals. They're just really good people managers. And that allows for there to be this really good equal respect between the management, the coaches and the playing group because we're all the same. We're all trying to get to the same goal just because they're the coach and maybe they get paid more doesn't mean they deserve more respect and we deserve less respect. It's It should be equal. And, yeah, I, don't, I do not think there is a, a big gender issue in, in men coaching women or women coaching men. I think it's just the approach of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think quite regularly gender is brought up and I think it's really important to actually acknowledge that there's a lack of women in coaching and that that should be balanced. But also I think it's important to understand that it is an individual person coaching a group of individuals. I'm getting close to singing High School Musical. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in this together. But, um, the first time. <laughs> yeah. yeah no so i think i think that's important to understand that it's actually goes beyond gender it's personalities people individuals working as definitely and i think that's where and what i brought up in the piece i think that's where um hockey australia have failed a little bit and is that in the women's program for the last 20 years we've tried to replicate a coach similar to rick charlesworth and he was fantastic for his day for women of that era. It worked really well. They were extremely successful. And I feel they've just tried to get coaches with a similar style and a similar approach to Rick, which is very, I mean, I didn't get coached by Rick, but my perception was a bit of a bit of a dictator. And that worked at, at worked at times for sure. And he's an incredible coach. But I think now what female athletes need is is very different. And I think Hockey Australia failed in noticing what coaches would work for this more equal partnership between uh, players and coaches. It was interesting actually talking to him because he said he, when he first coached the women, he was very didactic and very controlling. And he, over time, he felt he changed. 
But the one really interesting thing that he was talking about was he was talking a lot about his coaching team and having that divergence of personalities in there and but also having high level of competence in there. And he, he basically said, you know, I was carried by them. They, they had shotgun in, you know, alongside me. And I think, I think that's really interesting. The too often there's a, an emphasis on the head coach being responsible. And actually Mm. you have to, as an organization, create a management team that is complementary and not just go, Oh, that's a good person. That's a good person. That's a good person. But actually look at how, they work together to to build this environment holistically for the players. I think on it as well, it's about the coach understanding the situation. I don't think it's a one a one approach fits all, does it? It's you know at certain points in the game, third quarter, you're losing one nil. It needs to be clear. It might need to be didactic. It might need to be authoritative. It might need to be this. But there'll be some girls that actually just need a real come on. You can do this, and it's understanding that mixture for the player group. Yeah, for sure. In most teams, you've got up to, you know, 18, 20, 27 players maybe in a squad and you're going to have 27 very different athletes who all respond differently to every situation. And I'm sure it's a very tough job as a coach to handle all of that. Um, But that, that also comes with it to know how to work individually to with each athlete and know that not every style of communication is going to work for every single person and, and also you know you you fuck up because <laughs> yeah. you're dealing with people you, you put your foot in it and you know nobody's perfect it's a, a, it's, a lot as well you fuck up a lot yeah <laughs> it's acknowledging that but it's also being open to go actually sorry i've got that wrong and i didn't mean it like this and instead of just building and layering on on top of, of errors and hope hope that they disappear over time, but yeah, you'll say things with all the best intentions in the world that can come come out horrendously, or yeah. the the consequence of the you know the implied message there that you didn't even think about is massive. And I think you have to constantly be. And this this is hard because it leads you actually from a coaching point of view it can make you overthink and it can make you really socially anxious and twitchy and worried if you don't get the reflection right, which I think is why you need a support network as a coach as well. But you do have to just keep seeking feedback around how a message has gone and, and allow the players to feel like the environment is open to be mm. and to say, do you know, what you've just said and the consequence of that in my mind is now this and that's really you know you talk about psychologically safe environments that that candid communication and the open channels of communication the ability that if I don't get on with Elliot that actually I feel comfortable to talk to you Lily that you can say to Elliot look Will feels that you've done this and he's really struggling with it that yeah and that, that's, that's then when it becomes really collaborative and together, even though I might not be able to communicate with one person, but I know there's other routes. And that, I think, is where a coaching team is really important. You, you spoke in the article about how the players weren't comfortable with the psychologist. Mm. That, that, to me, is really mind-blowing. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, that's quite a... It's something I just really 
do not understand because it's been the same across true Olympic cycles of the psychologist that has been employed by Hockey Australia to, um, for the hockey roos. And I don't know if there's something in the in their contract, but there's always seems to be a breach in confidentiality when you, when you're talking to the psych that's employed by Hockey Australia. That information goes back to the management, and it's sort of psych 101 that things are confidential. Um, and there became a real um, lack of trust in the psychologist that came on board during my time that it it's almost like he was there to to seek information from us for the benefit of the coach rather than there to support us and a lot of his methods for for working with us and and sort of team building I hate that terminology but team building activities they just didn't work for us and he he didn't have the ability or at the end it even seems like the the motivational effort to change that and to and I think I've found um a male psychologist in a women's sporting team has often failed us a lot um and I think he very much failed in being an ally and in in being someone that we had confidence in and and that was supporting us individually and and the team and yeah it just blows my mind a little bit the ickiness of that the space in the team environment the the psychologist also has a role towards the coach in terms of um you know for me if i had a sports psychologist working with me i want them to support my ability to connect with the group i'd want them to support my reflective process in terms of my communication and, and my actions and and giving me a critique of that not necessarily a criticism but this is what's happened this is a consequence of it so i can link the causal relationship there I, I wonder if that gets corrupted maybe in the mind of the individual in terms of where where they're supposed to be working how they're supposed to be working who they're responsible to and for what would be the communication process that you would have if let's say if you have a, a problem with the the coaching staff and the management structure what would be the the process that you would have in terms of being able to communicate that with the organization or the hierarchical structure of hockey australia was not one good question i've i think i've always been quite an open honest athlete and i would often speak to the coach directly or whoever it was about an issue that I had, whether that uh, worked for me or not. Um, not, not sure. But yeah, I think a bit of a process for us, if if you're not able to talk directly to someone, would be to go to our, our captains, to then speak to the coach and then to hire management if needed. But often, oh, I don't know, I don't find, I didn't find that that chain of communication or a way of reporting really worked um and I think we really missed the ability to have direct conversations or to have the confidence to speak to someone 
above us to pass information on as you just sort of described with you telling me an issue about Elliot and me being able to relay that I think that didn't work so well for us it would be good actually if we could keep that relationship going Lily because problems we'll be over the next 12 months and I need someone to talk I yeah, can just no stop job. calling you or you can just stop <laughs> easy my wife would be much happier <laughs> Yeah, so we've spoken a lot actually really around organisational stuff and, and about your journey. Now it's just kind of thinking about individuals. So, and, and, and what sort of toolkit or early warning system they might be able to develop. So I wonder if you could give just some advice really around if, if I'm an individual and I'm struggling in an environment, how would I recognise that? Or what might be some of the signs from your experience that you might recognise that and what your advice would be in terms of tools in dealing with it? Oh, tough questions, but good questions. I think, firstly, it, it does take a bit of self-awareness to, to recognise, I guess, how your emotions change, but I think a something that really helps with that is having someone whether it's in your organization or external support whether it's through family or friends that you're able to have open conversations with that aren't that very generic oh hey how are you going yeah good thanks dismissive sort of conversation someone that you can dive a little deeper with to help you understand what your feelings in that moment or over the last week or whatever it might be what they might actually mean and what uh, a pathway might be to to maybe look at them a bit deeper if it's a if it's negative or you're, you're feeling quite down yeah working out the signs can definitely be hard but I think communication is just is just really key you've just reminded me of something actually that is quite useful just in terms of being aware of emotional change and logging how you're feeling over a period of time. So, you know, journaling that, even at something as simple as using emojis. So like yeah. <laughs> daily emoji, like this is how I'm feeling when I'm waking up. This is how I'm feeling when I'm going to bed. And it can just, if, if you're linking that with what's happening in the week, it can maybe highlight your emotional reaction to certain scenarios and situations and find those trigger points. Which then, if they, if you know that thing is coming up, you know that you're going to have to deal with it, so you can start. Uh-huh. The last thing was really about the the toolkit. So we've spoke about how we identify where we're at and those that sort of warning system that we might be developing around our emotional well being. Uh, the other bit is then actually how we deal with the situation or how we deal with ourselves, um, and what advice you could give for someone who you know. People are in lockdown in the UK now, in, in different countries in Europe. Um, you know, the situation is still not great. But even after this situation, people will find themselves in psychological harm, possibly. So how can they, as an individual, deal with that situation and manage that situation? Two things sort of come up for me. Um, and the first one is to try and, like, sit with yourself and sit with how you're feeling to try and understand it. I think we can often be very dismissive of bad thoughts or feelings at all, just like sort of put a bandaid on it. No, I'm not feeling like that and ignore it and not trying to make sense of it. 
So I think to have the ability or the time and the space, which a lot of us have at the moment to maybe just, yeah, be able to sit, notice the feelings and, and, and try to make sense of them. And then once you've maybe acknowledged what it, what it is, then being able to talk to someone about that and not get stuck so much inside our own heads because I think uh, this was a really good tip my a psychologist uh, my psychologist gave to me was that often we create movies in our heads and we're stuck on a certain channel or a certain movie and we just need to pick up the remote and change the channel to something different something more positive and now often my partner will say to me if he can see me getting in a bit of a bad headspace he's like what movies are you making in your head right now? Like, where's the remote? Pick it up, change the channel. Yeah, so I guess they're my two little tools to sit with it, to talk, and then change the channel if you can find the remote. I can't remember the book I read. Um, I don't know why I'm looking at my bookshelf. That's not going to help. But there was a really key thing a bit about changing the channels where they were talking about, you know, when you go to sleep and you have that thing in your head that is just going round and round and round. And um, it was saying about how if you acknowledge it and just say hello to it, and stupid as it is, and say, right, I get it, you're there, you're worried, now fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give it's... it a name and tell it to fuck off. <laughs> is that the chimp paradox, Elliot? Um, it might be chimp paradox. I think it's interesting you said about changing the channel because one of the things, and this might be, um, you know, we've spoken about how men are perceived to have to behave culturally. One of the things for me is being okay to be emotional. And actually, when I feel like I'm on the edge, go and watch the first 10 minutes of Up. And, <laughs> and, just, and just cry and then, right, okay. There's that sort of catharsis that you can get from just going, it's all right, just have an emotion. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely on board with that. I'm a big crier and definitely cry watching up so that's a great tool <laughs> fantastic there you go so if you take nothing else from the podcast so one of the questions we tend to ask coaches through our sort of podcast is what does the sort of future look like in terms of hockey so again thinking about the group of maybe i've got under 18 girls starting in their national program how do where do you think maybe that like you said, the Rick era versus this era versus the next era, what do you think is going to be in the future for female sport? Uh, in hockey, maybe. That's quite a broad question, I guess. <laughs> Ooh, you guys are asking some tough ones. Um, I think it's a big shift towards a more collaborative and vulnerable approach to coaching, as we've touched on, I guess, throughout this is that yeah I don't think it can be master student relationship and I think that's going to help coaches as well as both of you are sort of brought up that you get a bit of anxiety or um, imposter syndrome questioning your own uh, knowledge and if it maybe hockey needs to shift to a bit more of a I've been doing some research lately so this bit off topic um, on where the word coach actually came from and it originated from Germany, which first meant a, a cart that would be carried by horses to transport things, a coach. And then that first got used in teaching right. as, a, <laughs> yeah, as a, a teacher who would carry their students into exams and then into coaching as or into sport as a coach who would 
carry their athletes through a game. And so maybe there's this like really weighted pressure on a coach that they're carrying the load, that they're, they've got to move their athletes and their, all of their knowledge is going to be what, what moves the team. But maybe it's, it's, it's not that it's the whole group. It's all collaborative carrying each other um, to success. Uh, yeah, so I'm gonna. That's gonna be my answer for your very tough question. <laughs> I, I, think I think that's really interesting because quite, quite a lot of the time people talk about a servant leadership model as being a really good leadership model, and actually, what you find with a servant leadership model is the leader, in inverted commas, tends to suppress how they are feeling for the sake of the group, which is equally unhealthy, and so it's it's almost having a an emotionally open servant leader who is there to support the group. But as you say, a collaborative leadership model, I think is really powerful. I think it'll be interesting as well in the sense of COVID. And so my wife, she's part of the events industry, which in England just hasn't been functioning. And she decided to go self-employed before it all kicked off. So it's been pretty bad timing. Mm. But her and I have definitely grown a lot closer together in terms of our open communication. And I think post covid of course there's the negative side where there's going to be people that are very lonely and haven't had that support but on the other side there is like you've said about your partner having this support network around you that almost you're forced into speaking to mm. a little bit more so it'll be an interesting one to see how that plays out yeah i think covid has definitely shown us what the really important things are like our close relationships family partners and if you've got that steady and as, as a good support in your life I think you're in a pretty good place. You spoke about what next for coaching environments what next for you what what have you got irons in the fire or plans or are you just enjoying chilling out? Well interesting question flowing on from what we just spoke about um, I'm absolutely terrified for life without hockey I was I always thought I was someone that had lots of interests outside of sport and I had, I've, I guess I thought I had a bit of a path, pathway of what life would look like after hockey. And now that hockey has, has ended, I'm like, well, who the fuck am I? What do I do? What's my next step? And I've always had, always been training towards a goal, always been motivated by something. And for the past four or five months, I have had, no motivation to do anything. I haven't exercised in five months, which is just like bizarre for me. And the last two mornings since since getting home to, to WA, I've meditated each morning and I just like keep telling myself to like, like just I keep telling myself to come here because like my mind keeps going to like a million different places. And there have been a few times where I've in the middle of meditation, I just like stepped off the mat and like walked away. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not done yet. I'm not ready to leave. Come here, sit here and just be okay. That things are fucking shit right now. I have no idea what I'm doing in my life and that's okay. So yeah, I don't have an answer to your question. I am confused, but I feel okay to be confused and lost right now. <laughs> will you be playing club this year? Yes, I will be. Um, Planning to stay in WA, but my partner is French, so we may be moving to France if COVID things change. Look how excited he is. He, he's, he's got a centre-half slot free in Belgium, 
and he didn't even get the words out. He just shot up in his chair. Well, it, it might be on my list of things to do is play in Europe. We're right, we're right on the border of France, if, if that's of interest. It's, it's been on the cards, so we'll have to stay in touch. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I think that as well will just give you a, a new lease of life, really, a different, a, going to a different, a completely different environment. I mean, one of the reasons I've gone to Belgium is because of the experiences I had over the last sort of probably three years. I felt like a completely fresh start that would reinvigorate me and actually doing things on my terms for once was uh, was important so that's been you know from a personal point of view despite covid it's been really good for my headspace so i thoroughly recommend that <laughs> i think like you well, say being okay with not being okay is such a big thing yeah. as i say that's what me and my wife keep saying is i feel a bit crap i've had a real crap couple of days at work and I just said I'm not great at the minute. I just feel really deflated and down. And, you know, then that just starts a conversation. And mm. it's massively, massively helpful. I think knowing when you are down, it's not going to be permanent. Like, I'm a Wolves fan, so the motto of, um, of Wolverhampton Wanderers is out of darkness cometh light. And I think that's uh, a really powerful thing, you know, there is going to be something better than COVID. There's definitely going to be something better than COVID. 100%. <laughs> Whenever it ends. <laughs> well, um, anyway, it's been delightful to talk to you. Um, thank you for uh, giving us your time, really, and having a chat. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's been really good to have a quite a candid podcast interview rather than a very structured one so thanks to both of you for having me funny on. you say that i've been telling will <laughs> that this podcast needs to be less structured for the last however long don't you say you don't have to prepare elliot that's why you're saying look i have prepared and it's an unstructured podcast so. uh, really grateful for your time uh, it's been really great to listen to you and as i say you've got my head absolutely bouncing around with ideas for what i'm gonna do as a coach now and I think there's loads of stuff in there that hopefully coaches can go away with and go, all oh, right, wow, I haven't thought about that. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad. And if you've got any questions, send them my way. Always happy to keep chatting. I think one, the one thing that's really important to say is actually how brave you've been to, to stand up and actually not just to retreat to the shadows, but actually to be bold. Uh, and I think the, the confidence that as, you know, as a role model and a female role model in particular, uh, that will give both athletes and people in other environments to be brave and say, hang on, this isn't right and it isn't healthy and, and maybe have the courage to, to, to challenge that. So I think that's, that's something that, that you should be incredibly proud of, the, that impact that you will have. Mm, thank you. It's, um, yeah, certainly proved to be quite um impactful and has resonated with a lot of people which I didn't really expect I just sort of wrote the piece to get it all out of my own head um but yeah I'm glad that it's um proving to, to be helpful to a lot of people yeah well, well cheers anyway for for coming on and stay in touch I'll see you in Belgium in <laughs> September 2021 <laughs> perfect right there we go contact them Oh, well, he didn't even need the podcast. He was just hoping to get it. <laughs> What's your French like? Uh, très bien.
Wow. See, mine is terrible, which is... <laughs> a really great chat with Lily, and I think, despite the subject matter, all three of us were able to have a bit of a giggle as well, which is really important. Lily is happy for people to get in touch with her and you can find her on most social media platforms. I'd thoroughly recommend reading Upstream by her as well, which you can find with a quick search online. Be sure to check back next week for some more Leftfield thinking, when we'll also be launching an exclusive limited edition Dragon Hockey Stick giveaway, which is obviously really exciting. But until then, stay safe and well, and I challenge people to this week reach out and check in with someone you haven't spoken to in a while. Bye for now.